Boy, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Father, we thank you for this hour, and we ask you to bless it in ways that only you can. Lord, I prepared this message, but as in every week, um, you want to say things to specific individuals who are here. I have no idea what those things are. Apart from the study of your word this week, I pray, Father, however, that your spirit would be very personal in terms of illuminating the hearts of people specifically to their need. And Father, I pray that they would fly to you for whatever it is that you expose in their lives. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We want to be joyful worshipers of our Savior, proclaimers of the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. So we thank you, Father, now, and we pray as you have in these past few weeks in Romans 5 that you would speak. Oh, word of God, speak. Speak to my heart first and speak, Father, to everyone listening just now. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in Romans 5. If you're new to Calvary Bible Church, welcome. And uh, I gave my word early on that I would try to keep Romans moving. And we got to chapter 5, and, and it just, the breaks. I'm not sure what happened, but uh, I, actually I am. As I began studying it, I realized it, there, this was so rich. Uh, the beginnings of chapter 5, so rich, as all of Romans has been so far, that we just couldn't press too quickly here I just couldn't bear the thought of skipping anything or missing anything that might be here. And so here we are, I, I keep saying, in, in your bulletin it says, this is uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5. It's been Romans 5, 1 through 5 for three weeks, and it will be Romans 5, 1 through 5 for at least one, maybe even two more weeks. Um, I just say that to say I hope that your hearts are engaged and that you're doing whatever is necessary to keep your hearts engaged while you're listening. Uh, this fallible preacher doesn't get everything right, but the word of God is true. And so I pray that you will uh, be eager to receive whatever the word of God has for you today. Now, I expect that we have all heard delightful stories from the past of people who perhaps bought an old house or a barn that they intended to use as a simple fixer-upper, a barn dominium or something, only to discover during the remodel that concealed within one of the walls was a priceless treasure worth a fortune. This week, as I was studying for this message, it occurred to me that, in a sense, justification, justification is a little bit like this. Imagine with me that your justification is like a small chest that you unexpectedly discovered in the wall of your house as you were doing a remodel project. You take it to a skillful appraiser, and he tells you that this is no ordinary chest, this box. It is, in fact, the rarest and most valuable chest in the world, having been previously owned by an ancient king. Instantly you become wealthy beyond your imaginations. Not only that, but the appraiser carefully examines the chest 
And as he does, he discovers a false bottom. And carefully, he lifts the thin board that appeared to be the box's base and exposes the hidden contents. What comes to light in that moment takes your breath away. Because there in the bottom of the box, and now before your very eyes, lay several precious jewels fit for a king. No doubt the king who owned the box. And each of those jewels is more valuable and, price, and, and precious, at least as much value and preciousness as the original box it was hidden in. This is how I envision what Paul is revealing to us about the doctrine of justification. As soon as you discover how precious a treasure it is, Paul reveals that there is actually more. There's more than you have imagined so far. For inside this priceless chest of saving justification, there lay several jewels of divine grace. We've already examined two of them, and so I won't go over those again this morning. The first one is named Peace with God. And the second one was Access to God by Grace. You remember we talked about the palace of grace. That's where we live now that we are in Christ by justification. So today, I want to examine with you Another treasured jewel, one of the jewels that came spilling out of the box of justification, which is given to every believer as a gift of divine grace. But of course, as always, before we refresh ourselves on this text, let's, let's read the text. Stand with me now, and we'll read Romans 5, 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also attained access or introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance proven character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can be seated. Well, the third jewel of justification, which I previously re referred to, is anchors of our security. You know, I just couldn't find a good analogy that fit everything that I wanted to say about uh, these components of uh, justification. And so this time I'm calling them, last time I called them uh, uh, anchors, and, and this week we're calling them jewels, and you can call them whatever you want to call them. But number three, the third jewel, I am labeling hope in the glory of God. This is the third gift. This is the third stabilizing gift. Now remember the context here, right? I believe that what's happening here is that Paul's responding 
to sum, now that he's finished those first four chapters and he's explained to us, unpacked for us, opened up to us, revealed to us the inner workings of our salvation, the inner workings of justification. And at the end of it, you kind of get this sense that perhaps people are saying, okay, we get it and we believe it, but is justification robust enough to get us all the way to and through judgment. And by that I mean, when you see Jesus face to face, will all of our justification just melt away when we see him? Will we be in trouble? Will we be condemned? Is justification enough? Is it sufficient? And his answer is a profound Yes, it is. Yes, 10,000 times yes. For eternity, yes, it is sufficient. Not only because of what justification teaches, but because of everything that flows out of your justification. They truly are beautiful, jewel-like anchors to your soul. Now, I realize this is going to sound peculiar, but the first point in your outline is... Christians should frequently boast. Now, what does that have to do with anything else I've said? Well, I'm about to explain that. Uh, the word rejoice here, verse 2, and in, throughout the New Testament, the word rejoice is often translated boast. Who knew? To boast. In the Old Testament, boasting is is often used to describe the basic attitude of the ungodly who depend on their own resources rather than depending on God. In the New Testament, however, the word is used primarily by the Apostle Paul, and oftentimes he uses it in a positive way. For example, 2 Corinthians 10, 17, he writes, Let the one who boasts, boast in the, say it, in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me that I should boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This boasting, this joyful boasting, Lloyd-Jones suggests, is a kind of boastful rejoicing that is commonly displayed when someone wins a competition and belts out the victory shout, or in my house, the whoops and the cheers and, and the all, you know, we play games in our house a lot of times and sometimes I'm not, at, I'm in my office listening and at, I can tell when the end of the game is coming because the whooping begins. <laughs> and, um, and it gets really loud. And Lloyd-Jones says this is similar to what this word means. It is kind of a victorious joy. It's an exclamation, Lloyd-Jones says, of self-congratulation. And this is something like what Paul, what I think he means, what he has in mind when he uses the word rejoice or boast, except that this expression of boastful joy is not directed toward oneself, but rather to the excellencies of Christ and the majesty of God. 
The word translated rejoice is actually used three times like this in chapter 5. Here in verse 2, it is boasting in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, it is boasting or rejoicing in our sufferings. We're going to talk about that next week. You want to be here for that. Boasting in our sufferings. Verse 11, it is boasting or rejoicing in God. And so as you carefully read the Bible, especially the Psalms, you're going to find from time to time, you're going to hear, as it were, faithful men boasting in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. And if you can kind of imagine putting yourself in their position, in the temple, boasting in the Lord, it is very similar to what we experienced this morning in our worship service. Singing God's praises. I hope that you didn't sing those songs with a frowny face. As you're singing, Christian congregational singing is supposed to have an effect on your heart. And if it doesn't, you should ask yourself some questions. Is my fellowship broken with Christ? Am, is there sin in my life? Um, am I bitter? Am I just discontent? I've been spending too much time with entertainment. What, what is it that keeps my heart from rejoicing? You were created for this. We were created for this. And here Paul refers to it as boasting in the Lord or rejoicing in the Lord in such a way that is almost bombastic boasting. And let me give you some examples out of the Psalms. And I gave you one a little earlier on, but here is... Psalm 16:11. In fact, I think the one that I read during the pastoral prayer was even better than these three, but let me just not go back there. We don't have time. Psalm 16:11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is the psalmist doing? He's boasting in the Lord. Psalm 34, 2 and 3. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. You know, that's what, that's what uh, Kyle does when he comes up here. He's essentially saying... Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 44, verse 8. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Is that a part of your life? Is that a part of your Christian experience? You say, well, I can't sing. The Lord doesn't know that. You are in Christ. And I've told you before that God never thinks about you apart from Christ. He never sees you apart from Christ. And I hadn't thought about this until just now. But he doesn't listen to you apart from Christ. And I think Jesus can sing. When you sing, it is music to his ears. 
because we are making our boast in the Lord. So throughout the Bible, we discover godly men and women boasting in the Lord. And they do it for many reasons. Maybe they're in worship at the temple or, or wherever David may have been leading or the priests. But there are other reasons like the birth of a baby uh, or the announcement that there's going to be a birth of the baby. Sometimes that's just as joyful. Do we miss the opportunity in that moment to boast in the Lord? Deliverance from our enemies? Answers to prayer? In the Old Testament, the completion of the temple would be another example. When miracles are performed, and no doubt you can find all kinds of categories in your own life. When, when your daughter or son gets married to a godly man or woman, you should rejoice in the Lord. When we were lost sinners, we had nothing to boast about in the Lord and no desire to do it anyway. God was not our delight. He was not our refuge. He was not our strong tower. He was not our strength. He was not our deliverer. He was our enemy. Which is the whole point of peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. That's something to boast in the Lord about. We were his enemies. All our boasting was self-centered, empty, and hollow. But now we rejoice in the one thing that has infinitely more value in our joyful boasting than anything else in the world. Namely, the Lord Jesus himself. He's worthy of our boast. You know, sometimes I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about shame these days. You know what I think the problem is? Uh, the problem is we are ashamed of, the wrong, of all the wrong things. We are unashamed at things we should be ashamed of, like abortion, right? Or like treating your wife badly, or your children, or your neighbor, or whatever it is, cheating on your taxes. And you may not feel any shame for that. But on the other hand, you feel shame for things that you shouldn't feel shame about. We get things all mixed up. But when we're thinking clearly, we can boast in the Lord. We can boast in the Lord for what he has done for us, how he has changed us. As I said, there are many reasons for boasting in the Lord, and, and we should boast in the Lord often. This isn't just for ancient David. This is for you. And this is why we sing. So we should do this. We should boast in the Lord. I mean, when God answers your prayers, you should boast in the Lord. When an unexpected gift comes your way that's the, that meets the need perfectly, you should boast in the Lord. Rejoice in him. When in his kindness God disciplines you, yes, disciplines you, and grants repentance and bestows his fatherly forgiveness, you should boast in the Lord. When the word of God speaks to your soul with power through a sermon, or for, through a brother or sister who's speaking to you biblically or giving you biblical counsel, you should rejoice in the Lord. There are 10,000 reasons to boast in the Lord, but the Apostle Paul has in mind one particular reason for rejoicing in the Lord, and it's all about the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? 
We have a little theology lesson here. What is the glory of God? Well, sometimes in Scripture, the glory of God refers to the blazing effulgence of God's majesty. The blazing, like think of the sun as the blazing center of the solar system. Think of, uh, think of God's revealing himself in the Old Testament in, in physical appearance, appearance, sometimes like fire, sometimes like blinding light. That's one kind of glory. On the other hand, in the Bible, sometimes it, it is, it, it call, the Bible calls upon people to give glory to God. Now, of course, none of us can, uh, none of us has the power to add to God any essential glory or add anything to his essential being. God is infinite in all of his perfections. Nothing can be added to him that would make him better. And we wouldn't have the, the capacity to add anything to him anyway. And so when we talk about ascribing to the Lord or giving to the Lord this kind of glory, this glory is a kind of glory that, and I already used the word here, ascribes glory to who God is, to his name. Ascribe to the Lord. So we declare, when we ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, we declare that he is glorious. We use specific terms to define certain aspects of his glory. For example, the psalmist declares in Psalm 96, 7 and 8, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Notice specific attributes here. His strength, his glory. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. While we were singing that last song, I, I started flipping through the songs that we sang this morning. And I thought, I wonder if I can find one that meets the qualification of ascribing glory to his name. My conclusion, every one of them. Every one of them. Let me just read some lyrics for you that you just sang, you frowny-faced worshiper. <laughs> Come, praise, and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessings on us poured. For pure and blameless in his sight he destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through his Son eternally to the praise of his glory to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. This is what it means to ascribe to the Lord glory. We perceive it. We see it with the eyes of faith. And we don't let it pass by without responding to it. And how many times have I said, when you... When you see a sunset, we were just hunting out at Pace's ranch out past Abilene, and I got stuck out in no man's land where there was no deer and uh, there was no wildlife at all. But there was a gorgeous sunset. And I just sat there and said, Lord, if you're not going to send me a deer, thank you for this more magnificent thing. 
the setting of the sun in all its glory. Beloved, this is ascribing glory to God. Ascribing glory to God is an act of joyful, boasting. I think the implication is that you're speaking to someone else about the glory of God. You're boasting, you're, you're telling someone how wonderful God is and how glorious he is. And I think the point of next week's sermon is when you do that and you're suffering, it's more glorious. In fact, the Greek word here uh, for glory is doxa. Does that ring a bell? Does it sound familiar? For you young people, maybe not, because in churches we don't sing the doxology very much anymore. Maybe we should. But that's where we get the English word doxology. From doxa, it means glory. And so I think it's appropriate to say that Christians should frequently boast. We should frequently boast. We should boast and rejoice in the Lord. But what Paul has in mind here in Romans 5.2 is a different kind of glory than what we've already talked about. It's a different kind of glory in which we are to rejoice. And this brings us to the next point. Christians should meditate on glory. Christians should meditate on glory. And I think chronologically, meditating on glory should come first. And then boast in his glory. So in this passage, Paul is not thinking about God's essential glory, or even his ascribed glory. Rather, he means to point to two experiences of future glory. Now, I just said the word experience, and some of you are going to have an apoplectic fit. Listen, your relationship with the Lord should be experiential. So should your relationship with your wife. So should your relationship with your children and the people around you. I call them experiences of glory because when they come, we will not be observing them from afar, but we will be completely and wonderfully and personally immersed in them. The first experience of glory is verbalized in the promise that we will see him. This is a promise of future grace. We will see him. Peter says, Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. And here Paul is alluding to the fact that one day you will see him. You will see him. And that will be the consummation of everything that you ever hoped for. As we learned last time, before Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross, we were, were at, at enmity with God and were separated from God. But, but, Ephesians 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And because of that great love with which he loved us, he established a personal relationship with us. 
a relationship in which he opens himself to us so that we can know him. J.I. Packer was right. You may know something about other people. You may get online and see them on Facebook. You may read about them in some news venue. You may have someone tell you about that person. But the only way you're ever going to really know that person is if they open up and allow you in. And this is what God does. He takes the initiative to save you by his grace. He draws you into the palace of grace where you live as his forever family, part of his forever family. And his admonition that we can ask and seek and knock, and he will respond positively to each of those and any of those, implication, I'm totally open to you. What do you want to know about me? Anything that I can tell you about me, I will tell you and have in your word, in my word. It may be helpful to remember Jesus' definition of eternal life. John 17, Jesus says this on the night that he was betrayed, on the Mount of Olives, he says this to his father in that high priestly prayer. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you. Now, I want you to not miss the word know. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they may know you, they may know you. The expectation here is that this knowledge would not be merely factual and superficial, but personal and experiential. Therefore, Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, that we, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and le length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is an astounding text that we don't have time to unpack today, but he says that we may have the strength to comprehend what is incomprehensible, namely, the love of God in Christ for you. You say, well, it's, it's real, just really hard for me to believe that God loves me. I get it. It is incomparable. And yet Paul says, I want you to know it. And the Spirit has given you the capacity to know the deep love of God for you. Imagine it. Jesus is actually inviting you to experience an ever-deepening, ever-growing personal knowledge of God. That is, a growing and deepening knowledge that continues to grow until we experience the fullness of God when we see him face to face. Now clearly, as long as we live in this world and in this flesh, our apprehension, our yeah, our apprehension of his glory will be clouded. Our ability to see his glory rightly is always clouded. But one day whether through the door of death 
or through the return of Christ, we will finally see him. See him. It's like, uh, this is really maybe a, a crude, fallible illustration. I remember uh, first time I went to Shepherd's Conference, and I knew R.C. Sproul was going to speak, and I had read some of his books. He had such an impact on my life. His book, The Holiness of God, is what turned me on the, to uh, theology in the beginning when I was a teenager, when I was in college. And um, I wanted to get as far down front as possible, and we just waited and waited and waited. Why? Because I had read his book, but I'd never seen him. I just wanted to see this man that I had such admiration for. And that's the way it should be for us when we think about the possibility of actually seeing Jesus. Is he coming? Is he coming now? Is he coming now? How long should we wait? How long must we wait? He's coming. And there will be a culmination and a fulfillment of your desire. One day you will see him. You have read his book. One day you will see him face to face. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a glass dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am known. Beloved, long distance relationships can be real and they can be strong. But they cannot compare to relating to one another face to face. You may believe your relationship with the Lord is wonderful and intimate and lovely, and, and perhaps it really is, and I hope it is, and I hope it's growing. But one day when you see him face to face, you will begin to realize how much more there is to know. One of the most significant promises in the Bible is that one day we will see him face to face. In biblical history, it was a rare privilege and often a frightening privilege to see him face to face. The cry of Moses was, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord wouldn't even show him all of it, just his back parts, as it says in Exodus. Stephen had an experience of seeing and speaking with Christ moments before he died. He saw Christ in his glory. Not too long after that, Saul of Tarsus saw his glory in an entirely different way than Stephen did. Peter, James, and John witnessed the Lord in his blazing glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. All of these experiences were momentary and temporary and restricted. Peter even says, we have a much surer word even than seeing God's glory, and that is the scriptures. But all those experiences were momentary, temporary, restricted. But the promise that Paul is alluding to here in Romans 5.2 it's a kind of seeing and delighting in the Son of God that will never end, forever. I think this is what Jesus was alluding to in the Sermon on the Mount when in Matthew 5, 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in spirit for, what? 
They will see God. They will see God. Moses got to see him for a minute or two. You're going to see him forever. You'll see him forever. Today we see him through the eyes of faith. But on that day, we will really, truly see him. And you know what? Jesus wants you to see him. He has always wanted you to see him. That is, he has always looked forward to the day when he would be seen by you. You say, how do you know that? Well, back to John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, verse 24, Jesus prays one night, that night. I mentioned 17, all of, that, all of chapter 17 is a prayer to the Father before he was crucified. And Jesus cried out in the dark that night on the Mount of Olives, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And Jesus is saying, Father, I want my disciples to see me. I created them to see me and to know me. Will this be a physical seeing of the glory of Christ? I think so, in some sense. But more importantly, as Stephen Yule so helpfully says in his new commentary on Romans, he says, in that day, we will be like Christ. And therefore able to commune with God to the fullest capacity of our souls. There will be nothing to obscure, confound, or hinder our enjoyment of him. Our knowledge of God will be full and perfect and constant and complete, resulting in hitherto unknown delight as we rest fully and finally in him. Oh yes, we will see him. And so Paul says, we rejoice in the glory of God. We boast in the glory of God. And I think the first thing that he has in mind when he refers to the glory of God here is, of course, as I said, that we will see him face to face. But secondly, Paul wants us to know that we will not only see his glory, and this is critical, and just as wonderful, imagine these jewels tumbling out of that precious chest. We will not only see his glory, but one day, are you ready? We will share his glory. We will share his glory. That doesn't mean we will become God. That's ridiculous. Before we were justified, we fell, listen carefully, all eyes up here for a minute. Before you were justified, before any of us were justified, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is going to fix that when we see him. There will be no shortcoming of the glory of God 
we will become like him. In all purity and holiness, we will be holy as he is holy. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for your battle against temptation and sin to be done? Don't you long for the day when there will be no more tears and no more crying, no more broken marriages, no more bitterness, no more hatred? Before we were justified, we fell short of the glory of God. We were sinners by birth and by choice. But now that Christ has redeemed us, the Holy Spirit has been changing us. He has been changing us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul explains, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding, in the, glo beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So, our perfection, our glory, there are two components to it. As so much in Scripture and, and all the promises, perhaps, there is an already and a not yet. The not yet is... We are going to be one day transformed, resurrected, perfected. But the not yet is, that's the not yet. But the already is, we have the Holy Spirit who is already performing that work in our hearts. He is sanctifying us. He is progressively making us more and more like Jesus the theological term, as I said, is sanctification. As we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, he changes us progressively into the likeness of Christ. Yes, we have been declared righteous in Christ. We have been justified in God's sight. Nevertheless, we still wrestle with sin. We are still simo justus et peccator, right? At the same time, justified and sinful. In a very practical sense, we still fall short of the glory of God in our desires, our attitudes, our behavior. But one day, the day we see Jesus face to face, we will be glorified. And in that moment, we will be presented to God, like we talked about last week. We will be presented to God, holy and blameless and above reproach, we will instantly become perfect, morally perfect, and perfect in every way, even as he is perfect. Near the end of his life, the Apostle John wrote the following words, probably thinking about these texts and some in the Old Testament. Of course, a lot of the New Testament maybe hadn't been written by then. So without regard to chronology, which I probably just messed up, um, Here's what the Apostle John said. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's reassuring, isn't it? We don't have to wait till heaven. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him 
as he is. To see him in that perfect moment is to become like him. The transforming power of the presence of Christ. Beloved, at this point, we should be asking ourselves, why does Paul want us to know and believe these things? Well, the answer is, Paul wants us to know and, and believe these precious truths because this is our hope. This is our hope. How many of you need hope? Yeah, I do. This is our hope. I purposely kept this for last, even though it's hinted at in the middle of this verse. We've learned that Christians should frequently boast. We've learned that Christians should meditate on glory. And finally, Christians should rest in hope. We should rest in this hope. You see, Paul says in Romans 5, 2, that as justified believers, the end of our rejoicing, the end of our boasting, is the future experience of the glory of God. One day we will be fully immersed in the glory of God. Why is that so important for us, this side of heaven? It's important because the glory of God is the substance of our present hope. The glory of God is the substance of our hope. Now notice what Paul says. We boast or rejoice in hope. We boast or rejoice in hope. Such a statement should, should prompt the student of Scripture to ask, if that's true, then what exactly is hope? If Paul's making a big deal out of this, what is hope? Well, first, when we talk about hope, we pretty much need to completely set aside the typical English meaning of the word hope because it has really nothing to do or very little to do with the biblical concept of hope. I say that because in English, the word hope has two basic components. First, it contains the idea of desire or wish. And second, it contains an, an element of doubt or uncertainty. I wish for a million dollars. And I'm always disappointed. And so I doubt. There is always an element of uncertainty for that kind of hope. And by the way, that's not an unbiblical kind of hope. Paul wished to go places that the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. He wished to do things that the Holy Spirit didn't let him do. That's not what we're talking about here. Biblical hope isn't like that. Biblical hope is certainty. Biblical hope contains an element of desire, but it, it's also characterized by certainty. J.B. Phillips calls biblical hope happy certainty. It is joyful boasting in the certainty of God's promises. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a certainty that we rejoice over and boast in. It is a kind of hope that we sing about when we gather on the Lord's day. In the scriptures, hope is a confident expectation for future grace and specific kinds of future grace. How do we know what they are? They are contained in the promises of God. Hope is more than a vague wish 
that something good might occur. It is a sure and confident expectation that the good things God has promised for his people will be delivered. They will be delivered. This is hope. When I'm training biblical counselors, I'm always after them about this, and you've probably heard me talk about it. But the very last thing I want them to do with the people they're, they're ministering the word to is give them hope. And usually they say, listen, things are going to be better. You know, you're going to get through this. You're working hard. You're doing a great job. That's encouraging. That's fine. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope comes from the promises of God. They need to hear the promises. Not your wishes, not your hopes in a, in a human sense, but hope in a biblical sense. A life in which we will get to see the glory and share God's glory. And that promise is gifted to all who live in the palace of grace, the home of God's family on earth. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of that family. And what could be better? But even as a member of Christ's forever family, you may sometimes wonder if your justification is enough to get you all the way, all the way home. And so Paul tells you, are you kidding? These aren't happy, feel-good statements that we're reading. These are promises. Read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. It's long. And the whole thing is about resurrection. Your resurrection. Your resurrection. It is the culmination of everything we've longed for. You have an unshakable hope in the glory of God. And so rejoice, beloved. Boast in the Lord, because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You know what they call that? Promise. And what should you do with it? Hope in it. Hope in the promise of God. Listen carefully to this. Just as certainly as we have been predestined called and justified, you will be glorified. You will experience the transforming glory of God, and you will be glorified, which is just another term for resurrection. Beloved, these things are precious to us. They should be precious to us. But if you've never surrendered to Christ, Entrusting to Jesus all of your hopes that have no substance. If you have yet to come to him from salvation, none of what I've been describing these last three weeks are yours. God is still your enemy. God is still your enemy. And so I say to you, all of that could change this very hour. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Put all your hope in Jesus Christ, and you will be justified.
And along with that justification, we'll spill out treasure after treasure after treasure after treasure. And they are like massive, heavy jewels that anchor your life and preserves you until you see Jesus face to face. Is there any hope that your justification will fail? Are you kidding? Everything God had promised you is eternal. His promises never fail. And you can trust them. And if you trust in them, let them inspire hope in you. Father, we praise you for these things. Thank you. And as much as we try to grasp these things fully, we understand that until we see you face to face, our minds are incapable of delighting in them and, and even understanding them fully. We still see through a glass darkly, as it were. We long for the day when we see you face to face. The hope of that fulfilled promise. Oh, Father, I pray that we would hope in these promises this week as we get discouraged as the pain of physical suffering, perhaps, or other forms of suffering occur, when relationships are strained, when unexpected, the next unexpected bad news comes. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not be like unbelievers who have no hope, but rather we would make our boast in the Lord and trust in his promises and glory in Christ Jesus, and make no provision for the flesh, and find all of our hope in your precious promises of future grace. Lord, these things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus.